Hello and welcome to The History of Judaism, the history and story of the Jews, told by me, Yossi Silverman, a licensed tour guide and Jewish educator. We are now on podcast number 10. Hooray, we got to 10. Uh, the, this is actually part two of the last podcast entitled The Evil King. So it's The Evil King, this time focusing on The Good King, Josiah. Just a, a quick mention, if you haven't heard the last podcast, then you should certainly go back and listen to podcast number nine. If this is your first time listening to these podcasts, uh, you might want to start at least a podcast eight. Also, remember, please let's have a discussion. Leave your comments in the comment section or go to the subreddit Judaism cast. Uh, last time we discussed how Menasha was our first candidate for an evil king and he did fairly evil things here and let's be clear about this uh, with Menashe our evil king he is a historical actor we have discussions about him in other sources he does fairly seemingly evil things worshipping lots of colourful gods making alliances with Assyria who we don't want him to make alliances with that's all according to the Book of Kings. And then we said in the Book of Chronicles, seemingly there's a, a more deep story about Menasha being kidnapped and taken to Assyria. Then we mentioned his son Ammon or Amon, who seemingly has an Egyptian-sounding name, and he gets assassinated. And that brings us to the last king, the good king, Josiah. He's always known as the, the good king Josiah. We like Josiah. He's a good king. There are two things he is known for. Firstly, his religious reforms and a battle written about in the Bible that we're going to get to later because it includes a whole load of different problems. So let's get started with Josiah. Based on my understanding of the book in the Bible known as the Book of Chronicles, or Divrei Hayamim in Hebrew, I doubt very much whether Josiah would have been able to carry out his religious reforms were it not actually for Menasha, yeah, our evil king. Indeed, they all seem to start in the days of Menasha anyway, these religious reforms. Both Chronicles and Kings also describe Josiah destroying the idols in the high places, in the Bamot. That's one of the things, remember, that Menasha wasn't supposed to do. The archaeological evidence for this is pretty patchy. It is evidence something like this happened, that there's some kind of change in the uh, cultic evidence in the idols and things. Uh, I had wanted to tell you what I was told in a course I took way back when. I can't even remember who told me this and what the context was, but I managed to hunt down the source. I remember being told that we have evidence that the Josiah went down to the Kidron Valley, as it says in the Bible, to burn and smash idols. Or at least we have evidence that somebody went down in the Kidron Valley and burned and smashed idols. And one of the places that happens in the Bible is with Josiah. So there you go, evidence of Josiah, hooray. He destroys the idols, seemingly, of the Menasha and the Ammon period. And lo and behold, in this place i remember people talking about it they found idols in the the level that was being dug at which was identified as being 8th century and a considerable number of idols didn't have heads 
Then I managed to track down the source for my poorly remembered lesson, probably my fault. I found out it was a cave uh, known as Cave One in the city of David Archaeological Park. It's not really in the Kidron Valley. It's near, so okay. I'm sure they destroyed other stuff in other places too. It kind of supports it. It's close in, It really is close enough. It's about a 10 minutes walk. Okay, there isn't a consensus as to what the numerous figurines found in Cave 1 were doing there. It was about 1,300 complete f- pieces found ranging to, from, from cooking pots to idols. And many of the idols, as I mentioned, yeah, they were missing the heads. One archaeologist posited that this had been on purpose even if it wasn't part of some kind of religious reform that's kind of many idols losing their heads in a fairly similar way by the way i did say one archaeologist posits this it's not a consensus Josiah orders the temple cleaned out of all the idolatry of the two years of ammon's rule whilst cleaning out The workers find a very curious scroll. We don't know what's in the scroll. Upon hearing the scroll, Josiah blanches. He goes white and he commands the scroll be read to all the nation. But we still don't know what's in the scroll. It doesn't say what's in the scroll. There are various theories. Uh, The text in the book of Kings and Chronicles says, As soon as Josiah heard the book of the Torah the book of the Bible, or the book of the law, whatever you want to call it, he rent his clothes. Can I just make it clear? When I say he rent his clothes, it doesn't mean to say he went down to a tuxedo rental service and rent some clothes. That means he tore his clothes. That's just very, you know, fancy way of saying you tore your clothes. The Torah, when this verse says, Divrei HaTorah Hazot, the words of this Torah, that could mean the Bible, the whole Bible, like they didn't know what the Bible was, and suddenly they find the Bible. It could just mean teaching, a teaching, in a scroll. Uh, Some suggest they found the lost book of Deuteronomy. It's one of the books in the Bible, the five books of Moses, and apparently they didn't know it, and they rediscovered it. Uh, Some say this is proof that Josiah made up the book of Deuteronomy and some say it's proof he made up the entire Bible. Look, I'm going to claim that the Bible existed before Josiah. I'm an Orthodox Jew. You want to claim he invented the whole Bible? Fine, go ahead. I I really don't, you know, it's not, uh, as we said, biblical criticism, not really the focus of this podcast. Interesting idea. Maybe it was a document from Menashe as well. Nobody suggested that. Menashe doing all these dodgy things. Maybe maybe it's from that. That's speculation. When Josiah commanded the celebration of Passover, it, it kind of describes a big celebration of Passover happening. And it's written as if it, Passover hadn't happened in, in years. Well, I can tell you one thing. My mother-in-law, she will be delighted for 57 years without Passover because that means 57 years without Passover cleaning. So that's brilliant. Uh, But yeah, that's supposed to be a bad thing. Uh, That's the combination of the rule of Menashe and Ammon. So basically, we're seeing a whole big religious reform and it's seemingly something like that kind of happens, though... It's hard to pin down, but there's definitely changes in different archaeological sites and different strata. 
in the way people are worshipping. We are seeing a major landmark in Jewish history. In the midst of all this, the names of the great chamberlains and functionaries are flouted about in the text. One great person who's flouted about in the text is the prophetess, which is the lowly wife of some kind of low functionary, because they're describing all these things happening, this person going out, finding the Bible, this person reading it. And they discuss how they went to the wife of this lowly functionary, who's a prophetess. Her name is Hulda, which interestingly enough means weasel. So that's a fairly lowly name, except if you're me and you happen to like weasels. And she predicts the destruction of Jerusalem. That's fairly weird. Josiah is supposed to be good. Why are we suddenly predicting the destruction of Jerusalem. Well, it tells you how think bad things got before, doesn't it? It also tells you, uh, with all these religious form- reforms, are they having an effect? There's a, a principle in modern Judaism that rabbis don't tell you not to do something unless you're actually doing it. So Josiah doesn't actually go around destroying all these idols unless people are actually worshipping them. So that means things have got pretty bad in Judea. Uh, So she says, though, that because Josiah is a good man, the the temple won't be destroyed in his reign. What is the historical support for any of this? Well, firstly, there is some, as we said, physical representation of religious change. And secondly, there's certain features of the story that are mirrored in other texts. Please remember, not every king is going to get a mention in Assyrian histories of the period. I think it's enough to have one king mentioned... And then we assume, unless the king was called King Cyril the Eunuch, then he had kids. And then if something the kids did is mentioned in the Bible, well, we can't say that's conclusive proof, but we can say maybe the kids existed. And look, unless we want to just make up some names or just say son of of Hezekiah who existed and grandson of Hezekiah who also existed... We could probably call them Ammon, the son of Manasseh, and then Josiah, the grandson of Manasseh. And I think that's fair enough. We don't, I don't think we have to go too far. But in terms of what they actually do, that's an argument. There is, however, one thing we're pretty sure Josiah is kind of involved in. And you're going to understand why I say kind of in a second. The important thing we said we have to have a mirroring story. So Josiah is possibly involved in something which is mentioned in the Bible and is also mentioned in Babylonian sources known as the Battle of Charkamish, or Charkamish, people call it. Uh, So this is a a little bit bumpy, but stay with me for this one. Charkamish, that's a stable landmark. It's happened. It's in Babylonian sources. It's also mentioned in the book of Jeremiah. There you go. you got a story in the Bible, mirroring story. Who fought in it? it? This is where things get a bit difficult. Most people say the Egyptians and Assyrians on one side and the Babylonians and Medes on another. And many people tend to say Pharaoh Necho, or Necho, I don't know how you pronounce that. I'm not an ancient Egyptian, don't ask me. Of the 26th Egyptian dynasty. Sorry, dynasty Americans, okay? On the other hand, we have, at least according to the Babylonians, the Babylonians. They're definitely involved. Though the Bible seems to say that it's the Assyrians, at least in one place. 
Okay, it's not a problem. Esharadon had part of the empire ruled from Nineveh and part from Babylon. And he split it between two sons. And so maybe that carried on. So you're talking about kind of Assyrian Babylonians and others. Yeah, but according to the Babylonian chronicles, the Assyrian Empire was breaking up and it definitely was the Egyptians coming to fight the Medes, the Babylonians and Scythians on behalf of the Assyrians. So you can't really have the Egyptians um, on behalf of the Assyrians coming to fight the Assyrians. But it's not such a problem if you consider that people in Judea just probably looked over everything to the east of them and went Assyrians. By the way, Josiah dies in the run-up to this battle. So what happens? Necho is on his way to fight the Medes and the Babylonians in Carchemish, and at least according to the account in Kings, uh, the Book of Kings, and the Book of Chronicles, he bumps into an army heading to intercept him at a beautiful valley called Megiddo. And he sends a message to his good neighbour Josiah, who's intercepting him, saying, Hey Josiah, Nicho here, stay out of this. Your God, as it happens, is on my side, and it's not going to end well for you. Josiah then ignores him and even goes to the extent of disguising himself and going himself to the battlefield to fight. Some archers, it's not clear whose archers, don't recognise Josiah and kill Josiah. Really weird, isn't it? Also, you can imagine the dark hand of some kind of a courtly cabal here. A few comments. Okay, Megiddo, uh, that's a definitely a place. I've been there. Is a city called Megiddo, or it's also known as Har Megiddo, meaning Mountain of Megiddo, or Ar Megiddo, meaning a city of Megiddo. And Ar Megiddo, or Har Megiddo, lends its name to Armageddon. It's a massive city with enough room for lots of soldiers. It commands the valley below it where there's room for lots of soldiers inside the city very, very nicely. Uh, nothing really nice ever happens around the valley in Armageddon uh, apart from some nice agriculture. If I were to name all of the battles that happen in the valley of Armageddon, it would be like one of these three-hour podcasts like the kind what I actually like, like Dan Carlin does. Pretty much everybody from Thutmosis III in the 15th century to the British under Sir Edmund Allenby in the First World War come to the Valley of Armageddon and fight. It's also, um, since the Israelis' redevelopment of the area, it was a swampland which characterises the area, it underwent some very heavy agriculture in the 1900s, which, by the way, heavy agriculture, horrible for archaeology. That means digging stuff up and throwing it away. We can tell that there's been many battles there. The tell on top is fantastic. If you're in Israel and you like ancient history, you have to go to Armageddon. I happen to know a tour guide, so it's okay. Um... There definitely was a Judean garrison there in the late Iron Age too, with or without horses. You're just going to have to ask me that one another time. It's also, this attack might have worn down the Egyptians in their advance. The Battle of Carchemish is pretty much a victory for the Babylonian and Mede rebels, and pretty soon after, uh, the last real emperor of Assyria, Ashurbanipal, 
is seeing the collapse of his empire. There are a few little historical issues with Josiah dying in this battle. Firstly, the Battle of Carchemish is supposed to have taken place in 609. This part of it with the whole instance of Josiah might be a run-up to the main battle in modern-day Turkey, Carchemish. There's an internal biblical issue with this. According to Jeremiah, who mentions Carchemish, he says it was in the fourth year of the reign of Jehoiakim, unless I'm going to be referring to him as Hebrew as Jehoiakim. How can it be in both in the fourth year of Jehoiakim and the last year of Josiah? Maybe this is a different scuffle. We're not actually 100% sure that Nico, it was this whole business with Nico going to Karkamish. It could have been some kind of earlier battle or scuffle or Nico uh, just going there, even though the text seems to be quite sure he is. This is the lead up to a massive battle. Uh, I'm sure you can assume there were other little skirmishes before that. Even Nico's involvement, we're not entirely sure about because... There aren't actually any Babylonian or Assyrian sources talking about him being involved. It's the Babylonians ones would be very significant. They have like lists of captive kings and they'd be like, Yay, we got Nico captive. He is conspicuous by his absence there. Uh, don't really know how to answer that one. Apart from saying, yeah, there was some supporting role or scuffle that... Nico was involved in, kind of associated with the Battle of Karkamish, but not actually to do with that. We, we do actually have some battles around the time to do with that. I know it's nice to fit Judea into the whole thing. I don't necessarily think we have to fit Judea into Karkamish. We can fit it into the kind of run up there. Wasn't not sure what role this battle held in the, really in Karkamish, where Nico down did it not, we don't know. Lastly, Jeremiah, who actually brings the whole issue of Karkamish in there, uh, he is a prophet. He is not a historian. Prophets are not there uh, to give you a history lecture. Prophets are there to cause you to repent. Also, dating is messed up anyway. It's really messed up. Let's just start with, there's no universal dating scheme until 1582, with Pope Gregory creating the Gregorian calendar. Also, in this point in history, just everything's described as in the year of King blah, 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 blah. So, in the fourth year of King Yoyakim. Also, because, like, news takes some time, so, you know, and people's, like, recollections of other people's history is going to be a little bit hazy because it's based on when did the news get to you, not when did the thing actually happen. So if you shift a year one way or another, the text seems to be saying that it's both at the time of Josiah's death and four years afterwards. Look, you just shift a few a year here and a year there, and basically you've got rid of this four years difference. The book of Nahum, which I think people call Nahum, in, uh, if you're reading the King James. Again, please stop reading the King James. I'm calling it Nahum. Nahum is really, really jubilant about the aftermath of the Battle of Karkamish and the end of the Assyrian Empire. Well, rightly so. People really don't like Assyrians if they're ruled by them. And he says, Nineveh is destroyed, and who will mourn her? Are you better than Noamon? Referring to Nineveh, are you better than Noah? Wow. 
Noamon, by the way, was seen in the text as of Nahum as a code name for Nicho. And we said uh, last time, what did we say about the naming of Menashe's son Ammon? That it might be connected with No Ammon. So maybe there's some kind of family struggle here. Maybe Nicho's been uh, sticking his nose into Judean politics for too long. And maybe Josiah is uh, rebelling against that. Maybe something nasty happened to Nicho before Harkamish. I want to make something clear. I don't think Josiah is our evil king. He just gets kind of the runners-up prize of also being a bit dumb and dying in a silly way and getting stuck between two big empires. My only answer again leads back to a cabal at court or something else that I wasn't aware of because it got lost in history. There's also the issue of Josiah seemingly supporting rebellious Medes and Babylonians and I'm actually going to discuss that in a second. I don't think Menasha is the evil king. And Esharadon is actually too far away to be the evil, evil king of this of this episode, and his uh, the king after that Ashurbanipal a bit too late, too much far away, uh, the last proper emperor of the Assyrian Empire. So who is my evil king? Well, I'm going to announce who it is. Hezekiah. He's my evil king. You might be saying, well, you loved him last week. This is why I don't like Hezekiah, at least in this instance. There's a very strange scene at the end of uh, Hezekiah's life in the Book of Kings. And also, you might think I just didn't finish the story of Hezekiah and just expected to you know to know he died. Actually, no, I did that on purpose. So Hezekiah, skipping back to last time, is just about to die. He's feeling very, very ill and very, very sorry for himself. And uh, a king in Babylon hears about this. And this is a king called Marduk Baladan, or Berodok Baladan. In the, the text it's called Berodok Baladan, but actually there is a uh, king of Babylon known as Marduk Baladan. So that's who we think it is. He hears, and he comes over to Judea to visit, to have a state visit. He comes to visit Hezekiah. He says, I understand you're sick, mate. Just come to visit. Want to see how you are. What does Hezekiah do? Well, Hezekiah, for some reason, is struck by a great amount of vanity. And he shows off all of his treasures to Marduk Baladan. Including the temple treasures. What have you done? Asks Isaiah after they leave. And Hezekiah says, well, I showed off every single thing I own to these Babylonians. And Isaiah said, including the temple treasures? Yes, including the temple treasures. And then Isaiah said, and I'm going to give two alternate translations. And now you can understand why do I think that Hezekiah is the evil king. He says, Hinei yamim ba'im. Behold, the days are coming. That's never a good way to start. And everything will be taken from your house. And everything which has been gathered by your fathers until this day, and it will be taken to Babylon. 
לא יבטא דבר, nothing will be left. אמר השם, says God. ומבניך אשר יצאו ממך, and from your sons who came from you, meaning your grandsons too, אשר תוליד, יקחו. Everybody who is born from your house will be taken. והיו סריסין בהיכל, מלך בבל. And they will be servants in the house of the king of Babylon. And now I'm going to translate the, the whole thing again. Except it's going to be a little bit more sinister. He could translate it like this. Behold, the time is coming. And I will take everything in your house and everything your father's gathered to, the, to this day to Babylon. Nothing will be left, says God. And from your sons and your grandsons, who you have born, he will take. And they will be eunuchs in the temple of the king of Babylon. Wait, wait, wait. Just just hold on a second. You spent an entire podcast talking about Hezekiah, about how he was wonderful. And he's like this big dude and builds all these things. That's podcast number eight. If you haven't listened to it, go listen to it. And now you're saying he's evil. Surely, surely you can't mean that. Well, on the one hand, there's this just the general life lesson, you know, nobody is perfect, as my wife likes to say. And not just that uh, politicians aren't just automatic leaders. They're, they're also people. They also make mistakes and the mistakes have consequences. Uh, Menashe does idolatry. Amon does idolatry. <laughs> Josiah dies in a stupid way however on the other hand we do also want to say that Hezekiah really does something significant Hezekiah sets the train screaming down the hill to the wreck that is the Babylonian conquest and that's what we're going to be eventually dealing with uh, though next time in precisely one month's time we're going to be actually taking a step back because in order to understand all of this you're going to have to understand a little bit about the people and the se- and the historical setting you've been listening to the history of Judaism the history and story of the Jews told by me Yossi Silverman a tour guide at least in theory as you might be aware if you've been following uh, international events There is not much tour guiding going on right now because there are not many flights due to the corona crisis. My main source of work is menial labor from here and there. I was working on a uh, archaeological site, which was uh, great fun, but fairly uh, physically taxing, fairly difficult to come home and do a podcast after that. Uh, So if you want to show your appreciation, you can always visit my co-fi.coffee account and give a donation not just towards the the bills which are a little more bit more difficult to pay in the current situation a subscription to my uh, podcast service and, and the like but also in improving the sound quality of the podcasts as you might be aware sometimes we have a few glitches here and there with that please comment if you want to do something nice for me please comment please subscribe on whatever format you're listening to this on. Comments can go in the comments section. Like this. 
share it with your friends share this on social media uh, i have something else to offer you if you really like these podcasts and you would like to see uh, a glimpse into the the history and religious background to jerusalem uh, right now on youtube i'm finishing another virtual tour in the old city of jerusalem focusing on the western wall so you can go right now to my youtube channel scout israel and you can see new virtual tour that i'm putting together that should be coming out uh, within a few days after the release of this podcast you can also visit as we said my subreddit at judaism cast you can also visit facebook page scout israel my website scoutisrael.com and um, follow me on instagram yossi tour guide thank you very much for listening to the history of judaism the next podcast should be out in about a month's time you've been a wonderful audience